get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Despite the talk of staying the course by Western officials over the Ukraine conflict, there are signs of a growing fatigue and frustration, hesitation and even possible decrease in political and financial support to Kiev. Could this mean peace talks in the near future? How long will the deadlock continue? Meanwhile, how will the U.S. unconditional support to Israel in the Gaza conflict impact its global posturing? And after the summit between President Xi and President Biden in early November in San Francisco, could we finally begin to see an improvement in China-U.S. relationship? To help us break down these major geopolitical issues, I'm honored to speak with political science professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qingdu. Welcome to Dialogue, John. Let's start with uh, the Gaza crisis. You know, what is the end game? Will it be a Israeli occupation of Gaza, or the Gaza will be somehow taken care of by the Palestinian Authority, for example? Well, it's very difficult to say exactly what the end game will be. The first big question is whether or not Israel will defeat Hamas militarily and basically eliminate Hamas from the Gaza Strip. The Israelis say that they're going to do that. I do not believe that is going to happen. I do not believe that Israel can defeat Hamas inside the Gaza Strip. And if you look at what's happened over the past two months in Gaza, it's quite clear that the Israelis have killed very few Hamas fighters, and they're not on their way to winning. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is who controls or who runs Gaza after the shooting stops. And this is just not clear at all. The Israelis talk about occupying Gaza, but I don't think that's a viable solution, especially if they don't defeat Hamas. Sometimes people talk about bringing the Palestinian Authority. This is the organization that's run by Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank into the Gaza Strip and letting the Palestinian Authority run affairs in Gaza. That's not going to happen either. The Palestinian Authority has little legitimacy, and plus Hamas is still going to be there. So it's very difficult to see what the end game looks like uh, in Gaza, except for the fact I think that Hamas will survive. Uh, but beyond that, John, if you look at the uh, say global ramification of this crisis, of course you have the West, uh, especially the United States, siding with Israel against the Hamas, against the Palestinians here. In the sense, I want you to talk about uh, you know ramifications inside the U.S. probably or globally. You know what kind of impact that will have, say, on the U.S. global posturing because of the U.S. involvement in this crisis here. This is a disaster for the United States. I mean, first of all, the United States depends very heavily on having a stable Middle East. We want peace in the Middle East. And we're now in a situation where not only do we have a war involving Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip, but furthermore, there's a real danger of escalation to include 
uh, bringing in Hezbollah, uh, which would mean Lebanon got involved in the war, or a war with Iran. And this is the last thing that the United States wants. And therefore, we've actually gone to great lengths to make sure the war doesn't escalate. But it might. So in terms of stability in the Middle East, this is a disaster. But in terms of the sort of broader international system, this crisis is wonderful news for China and for Russia, because China and Russia are able to blame the United States for this crisis. China and, the, and Russia are saying that the United States failed to come up with a two-state solution. Uh, the United States failed to give the Palestinians or help get the Palestinians a viable state of their own. And furthermore, China and Russia are able to say that the United States is fully supporting Israel while it kills huge numbers of innocent civilians in Gaza. The United States looks terrible, and it looks to the world at large as if China and Russia are on the right side and the Americans are on the wrong side. So again, this is a disaster for the United States. Are you talking about the reputation? Because, um, you know, with, uh, say, the death toll, in particular with the civilians on, in the Gaza Strip, that's rising. Uh, there's more and more protests. There's no question about that. I mean, there are all sorts of newspaper stories in the United States about uh, anger inside the White House itself, inside the State Department, inside the U.S. Agency for International Development, inside Congress. I think it's very difficult for any decent American to watch what's going on in the Gaza Strip and not feel uh, sick in the stomach about what's happening. I mean, huge numbers of defenseless civilians are being killed by the Israelis, and the Americans are providing military support for the Israelis and providing diplomatic support. And this is not surprisingly generated a lot of heat inside the administration. If you talk about this broader system, as we said, you know, impacts on this international situation, of course, you know, one ongoing crisis seems to be or being affected already by Gaza. That is, uh, you know, attention is uh, being paid more on the Gaza, uh, to the Gaza crisis than the Ukraine crisis. Uh, the Ukrainians are worried about uh, that. I'm not sure whether that's legitimate or not. But anyway, uh, speak of the Ukraine crisis joint, where are we now? Are we seeing, you know, there's talk of like, oh, peace prospect, or are we continue to see the deadlock going into next year? Well, first of all, I don't think that the Gaza conflict is having much effect on the war in Ukraine. It, it's very important to understand that before October 7th, when the war in Gaza started, there was a significant movement in the United States to stop supporting Ukraine at the levels that we had been supporting Ukraine up until that point. So there was trouble inside the United States regarding further support for Ukraine before October 7th. Uh, and you want to remember that one of the principal reasons that the United States pushed Ukraine to launch the famous counteroffensive on June 4th was because we felt we here in the United States, that if Ukraine didn't score a significant victory over this past summer, then support in the United States for 
continuing to provide economic and military assistance to Ukraine would wither away. Of course, the Ukrainians launched that offensive on June 4th, and it was a complete failure. So the Ukraine issue, right, was in trouble before Gaza. So I don't think that that has mattered very much. But just with regard to your second question, what's happening in Ukraine, uh, I think it's quite clear that the Russians now have the upper hand, that the Russians are inflicting many more casualties on the Ukrainians than the Ukrainians are inflicting on the Russians. That again, as we were talking about, support for Ukraine and the West, especially the United States, has begun to diminish. And if you look at what's likely to happen over the long term, I believe that the Russians will win an ugly victory. We'll speak of the uh, aid to the Ukrainians, both financially and militarily. Uh, you mentioned about a significant movement to stop arming Ukraine, for example, in the United States. Uh, I wonder how big an Im impact that kind of Im movement will have on the Biden administration, on the Congress, especially on, say, if there's a new administration, either Republican or Democratic uh, president there. Well, it's quite clear that the Republicans are much less interested in supporting Ukraine than the Democrats. One could argue that in an important way, the Ukraine war is the Democrats' war. And Donald Trump has shown little interest in supporting Ukraine in the future the way the Biden administration has supported Ukraine up to now. So one could imagine that if uh, Trump gets elected in 2024, that the United States will go to great lengths to reduce further its assistance to Ukraine. I think that even if Biden were to get reelected, the days where we provided huge amounts of military and economic assistance to Ukraine are over with. Uh, we're not going to continue to do that. Uh, the Biden administration will try to do that if President Biden gets reelected, but I don't think that uh, that he will succeed. Mm -hmm. But John, what we are hearing from either U.S. officials or Europeans, at least publicly, they are talking about uh, stay the course. You know, remains providing solid support to the Ukrainians. So you are talking about basically behind the public appearance, they are under pressure, including the Europeans here. Yes, I think that first of all. We don't have the weaponry to give the Ukrainians to keep them in the fight in any meaningful way. Uh, the fact is that the Russians have uh, a formidable industrial base and the Russians are able to produce huge numbers of weapons, especially artillery tubes and artillery shells, which are imperative to have in large numbers when you're fighting a war of attrition. The West does not have the necessary industrial base to produce enough artillery for the Ukrainians. Furthermore, the West is in a sense lost patience with the Ukrainians because very few people now think that the Ukrainians can win. Last year, this is in 2022, uh, at this time in 2022, let's say November 2022, many people in the West thought that Ukraine would defeat Russia. Nobody believes that anymore. If you look at the rhetoric now that comes out of 
the administration or the rhetoric in the mainstream media in the West, uh, we're talking about preventing a Russian victory. We're talking about keeping the Ukrainians in the fight. We're talking about trying to help the Ukrainians hang on because everyone recognizes that the counteroffensive this summer failed and there's little prospect that Ukraine can win. So there's just not good reason to continue this war the way we have been fighting it with the Ukrainians in the past. And again, even if we wanted to do that, we don't have the weaponry to give the Ukrainians to help them in any meaningful way to win this war. So what's going to happen here is that the Russians are ultimately going to prevail. The Russians are going to win. What exactly that victory looks like is hard to say. I can give you my opinion on it. But the fact is, the Russians are going to win and NATO is going to lose. John, you know, religiously, uh, we have news that um, you know, Russia plans to increase its military budget um, to 6% of, of its GDP in 2024. That's about 122 billion US dollars next year. The number is the three times that of 2021 and uh, represents an increase of 70% higher than in 2022. What's the purpose? What do you make of the increase, uh, sharp increase of a military budget here? Well, I think when the war broke out on February 24th, 2022, and then for most of that year, we're talking about most of 2022, I don't think the Russians were fully committed to winning the war. I think the Russians for most of 2022 believed that they could get some sort of negotiated settlement with Ukraine and with the West. But by late 2022, the Russians realized there was going to be no negotiated settlement. They were going to have to fight the war and they were going to have to win the war. And what they did in late September was they mobilized 300,000 troops. This is in late September 2022. And then over the course of this year, 2023, they have raised about 420,000 additional soldiers. So the Russian military has gotten much bigger. And as you described it quite correctly, of course, the Russian commitment to defense spending has gone up significantly over the course of this past year. So the Russians are producing large numbers of weapons. They're bringing large numbers of uh, soldiers uh, to bear on the battlefront. This is the principal reason that the Russians are going to win. They are serious about winning this war. It's very important to understand that the Russians from the beginning have said that Ukraine in NATO is an existential threat and that losing this war would represent an existential threat to Russia. Now, they thought they could get a negotiated settlement. They didn't get it. So now they're committed to winning. Well, let's say if that's the likely scenario or the trend of the development of things on the ground, join. what is the global impact of such a scenario, of such a trend? Well, let's talk about what the impact is for China, because that's very important. The U.S.-China competition is the central uh, feature of international politics today and I think for you know the decades ahead. I think that this situation in Ukraine is good news for China. First of all, it means that the Americans are pinned down in Europe. 
the, the Americans are going to remain deeply involved in this conflict involving Ukraine for the foreseeable future. That makes it very difficult for the Americans to fully pivot to Asia and put most of their attention on China because they have to worry about Ukraine. And by the way, they also have to worry about Gaza. So this is good news for China. Furthermore, this continual crisis involving Ukraine is pushing the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. It's in America's interest to have good relations with Russia and for Russia and China not to be allies. Uh, balance of power politics tells you that. Uh, if you have three great powers in the system and you're the United States and you have this intense security competition with China, you want Russia as your friend. You don't want Russia friendly with China. But the end result of Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, is that the United States has pushed the Russians and the Chinese closer together. So the war in Ukraine, in terms of U.S. China relations and in terms of the pivot to Asia is bad news for us. Well, speak of China-U.S. relationship, uh, Professor, you know, we, of course, we have uh, had this summit uh, in San Francisco between the two leaders, President Xi Jinping and uh, uh, Joe Biden. And uh, there were, a f you know, obviously, a few deliverables uh, out of this summit that's, uh, I would say, encouraging for a lot of people. But at the same time, the U.S. is not changing its policy on China uh, substantially. So, you know, how do you make of the summit and how do you make of the relationship, uh, say, currently and also into the future? Look, I think, as I've long argued, that the U.S.-China relationship is going to be a fundamentally competitive relationship, both economically and in terms of security. The United States and China are going to be involved in an intense security competition moving forward. And there's hardly anything that can be done to change that. This is not to deny that you can manage that competition in smart ways. And I think that what happened in San Francisco is that the Chinese decided and the Americans decided, and here, of course, we're talking about Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, that it made sense to tamp down the intensity of the competition. Again, the Americans are deeply involved at this point in time in Gaza and in Ukraine. And the last thing the Americans want is trouble in East Asia. We do not want trouble with China because we have enough trouble in Ukraine and Gaza. So I think Biden had a deep-seated interest in tamping things down. And I think Xi Jinping, much like Joe Biden, has an interest in tamping down the competition and doing everything to sort of cool things off so that he can concentrate on domestic affairs for the moment. And I think that what happened in San Francisco is that the two leaders did a reasonably good job of tamping down the competition. But as I said before, this is going to remain a fundamentally competitive and potentially dangerous situation in the decades ahead. These are two great powers 
who have a different set of interests in East Asia. My view has long been that it makes eminently good sense from China's point of view to dominate Asia, to be the most powerful state in Asia by far, and to reduce America's influence in the region. If I were the national security advisor to Xi Jinping, I'd tell him that should be our principal goal. But of course, from the American point of view, it is in our interest to make sure that China doesn't dominate Asia and that we remain the most powerful state in that region of the world. And if you have two countries that have those conflicting perspectives, there's no way you can avoid a serious security competition. And that's what we've had at least since 2017. And we are, in my opinion, likely to have in the decades ahead. Well, uh, Professor, you talked about uh, you know uh, U.S. relationship, and of course, you know, you say U.S. Um, is, is you know as uh, you know, with Gaza crisis and Ukraine crisis, it's hard for the U.S. to completely pivot to Asia. Uh, but some others would argue already there were, uh, for example, some security architecture here in the Asia Pacific or Indo-Pacific region. For example, uh, the Quad system with India, Japan, Australia, and the AUX, for example, with Australia and uh, the UK, an Indo-Pacific uh, so IPEF economic framework from the United States. They are trying to basically exclude China from all those economic and security frameworks. Do you think that's, you know, for a lot of people, they say the U.S. has done enough to make sure that, uh, you know, they continue to dominate in this region? Yeah, there's no question that the United States has already moved forcefully to contain China. And there's no question that we've built a series of military alliances like AUKUS and the Quad that are designed to do that. I would also emphasize to you that the United States has strengthened its bilateral relations with South Korea and with Japan, and the United States has gone to great lengths to bring the South Koreans and the Japanese, who have a rich history of hostile relations, together to work together to help contain China. And of course, the big question on the table is what the United States will do with regard to Taiwan, because it looks like uh, the United States has adopted a de facto policy of forming an alliance with Taiwan. Uh, so the United States is active uh, militarily, and as you point out, economically in East Asia, trying to contain China. Uh, my point to you, though, is that the United States is not focusing nearly as much attention on that mission as they should, because the United States is, for the moment, focused on Ukraine and focused on Gaza. So if you go to a place like Southeast Asia, you see very clearly that the United States has not done a very good job of winning hearts and minds in Southeast Asia. And that, in my opinion, is due in good part to the fact that the United States is preoccupied with Ukraine and with Gaza. My view is that from an American point of view, the United States should be focused laser-like on East Asia, and it should not pay that much attention to either Europe or Gaza. John, well, we know that in less than uh, a year's time, uh, there will be an election in the United States. Uh, we don't know like, uh, whether Trump or Biden uh, will be in the White House uh, uh, from that time on. So how likely uh, there will be another term for Trump? And you know, how will that probably a second term of Trump 
uh, affect China-U.S. relationship. Predicting who's going to be the president uh, after the election uh, next November is very difficult to do. First of all, we don't know for sure whether Trump will be the Republican nominee, nor do we know for sure whether Biden will be the Democratic nominee. I would say at this point in time uh, that Biden is in real trouble uh, because of the war in Gaza. I think it's causing him significant problems. Uh, and those problems are likely to grow with the passage of time. Uh, and he has a handful of other problems as well. So if it is Trump versus Biden, despite all Trump's legal problems, he could win. Uh, I think a lot of people I know, if you ask them who they think is going to win uh, in 2024 and you force them to make a guess, I think most of them would say Trump. Now, I'm not saying that's likely or that's going to happen, but a lot of people think that Trump will beat Biden. That will be, uh, those will be the two opponents in 2024 and that Trump will win. So let's assume that's true and that Trump wins. The question on the table is how will that affect U.S.-China relations? I don't think it will affect U.S.-China relations at all. You want to remember that when Donald Trump was elected in 2016 and he moved into the White House in January 2017, he was the president who abandoned engagement with China and moved to a containment policy. So it's Donald Trump who started a confrontational approach to dealing with China. And then when Biden got elected in 2020 and he moved into the White House in January 2021, he merely continued Trump's policy of containment of China. You want to remember that Joe Biden at one point in time had been an arch proponent of engagement with China when he was the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and when he was the vice president of the United States. He was in favor of engagement. He was opposed to containment. But when he became president, he followed in President Trump's footsteps. So I would argue that given Trump's history on the China issue, and given the fact that both Trump and Biden in the past have pursued a hard-nosed policy toward China, I think it's quite clear that if Trump is elected or re-elected, that he will just continue the policy that, uh, that Biden has been pursuing, which is a continuation of the policy that Trump pursued in, in uh, his first term of office. Thank you, John. With that, we are coming to the end of today's discussion. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platforms Get ready to dive in. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.